Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Use a little more of that loyalty there, guys. <laughs> Oof. This midterm hangover is just not going to go away. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, welcome back, guys. Uh, Barstool Politics, I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined, as always, by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hi, Nick. Hey, hi. Uh, before we get started, typical stuff. Uh, if you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, just want to know what we're up to, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. The uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped that you can download on iOS and Android. Uh, the podcast itself, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, most major podcasting things. So you guys are listening to it. Just share it with people, whatever platform you're on. Do, do that. Don't make it complicated. <laughs> um, there was another thing that I'm missing. Well, this is where I would normally talk about Predict It, which in case you haven't been here uh, for the past few weeks, uh, Predicted is a, a real uh, money, uh, pretty much a stock market for uh, buying and selling shares in future political events, uh, which is great. We were using it during the midterms uh, to look at different races, uh, different events that's going on. Definitely looking at it going into 2020 and, and all of the, the events and um, uh, updates that we've had since the midterms. But what's really great this week is that we have Will Jennings from Predicted, who is the head of uh, uh, wow uh, public engagement. How's it going, Will? <laughs> I'm choking for some reason. Thanks for having me on. Mm. Going very well. Yeah. So um, beyond that, uh, if you guys, we're going to have a discussion with uh, with Will about Predicted and the midterms and a bunch of different things that have been going on. Um, if you guys are interested in Predicted, which you absolutely should be, it's a lot of fun. Um, so definitely take a look. For our listeners, uh, if you use our promo code and you open an account, uh, up to $20, Predicted will match your $20 deposit. So deposit $20, you will get another $20 to use on Predicted. It's free money, Nick. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, Predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20. Um, use that and get your free money. But in the meantime, yeah, let's get down to it. So before we get into maybe talking about the midterms in 2020, well, maybe do you want to start? We've been trying to explain Predicted to our audience, but you're going to be much better at that. Do you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about what Predicted is and and uh, why it's so much fun? Sure. Um, as you rightly point out, I mean, we bill ourselves as the stock market for politics, um, but the underlying technology of it is a prediction market. So you go in and for the midterms, for example, we had 178 markets up, I think, anything from margin of victory to who's going to win a race. If you felt like candidate A had a 60% chance of winning versus candidate B, you can invest, you can buy shares 
at uh, 60 cents a piece. And there is somebody on the other side of that uh, transaction that may disagree with you and take uh, the 40 cent bet um, that he doesn't win. And so each share, um, each trade equals a dollar. And that transaction amongst hundreds of traders ends up producing a price for particular outcomes to take place. Um, and so in the event that if you put down, if you bought 100 shares at 60 cents, if the candidate would win, um, you would make 40 cents off every share uh, if that took place. So uh, again, it's a, it's a stock market, but it's for political events. And it's not just elections, which was um, you know, traditionally where prediction markets came about. Now we do it for anything from, you know, who was going to be the Supreme Court nominee for Trump um, to how many times Trump will tweet each week. So <laughs> it, it, really, it really covers the gamut of uh, political events you can follow each week. And, um, you know, we try to remain topical with whatever's going on in the news. So with the midterms it had to be just crazy i can't imagine from your end but just watching the markets and and you know election night was so much fun uh we've been talking about it and as the markets shifted over the course of the night i mean you know as buyers and sellers their sense of where the market is going was it was really interesting to watch now on your end what are you what are you looking for in a night like that well i i mean I guess the big part, it, it, I feel like everybody for an election night is tuned into Twitter, obviously, watching for any sort of updates, um, you know, on the on the turnout, et cetera. There are some particular traders, um, some of which uh, who are writing blog posts about this stuff now and can give you kind of some uh, color throughout the night of what they're what they're hearing and what, you know, which way they think elections are going to go. So I'm always interested to see what traders are talking about, um, whether it be on the comment boards or, or Twitter. And then um, might as well get out of the way. We, we did have a little a challenge with, uh, you know, our site, the amount of people that jumped on the site for election night uh, was so much that we had a couple, um, you know, minor blips. So that was something that we were monitoring closely and is a uh, you know with, something that took place in 2016 as well so that's always well this is this is phil um it is uh are, are that are, that volume that you get on election night like that is that mostly people who are trading or do you are you pulling in people who are just curious they're they're following to see what uh, the markets are saying do you have a feel for for how much of you know how much of it is just sort of spectator versus how much of it is actually people get in on it yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's a mix. Um, I'll, I'll say election night 2018 was the second biggest night in our history as far as how many users were on the site. Uh, 2016 was the biggest. Um, and, you know, you have particular markets. The second they flip the amount of trades that are going on, it's just a lot of activity. And then on top of that, to your point, we do have onlookers as well that are just on the side to monitor and see you know where the odds are it's kind of it's kind of like the new york times needle uh for every race across the country 
over the course of the evening, I had I had a whole bunch of shares in the Democrats taking the House back, and I just felt like this is guaranteed money. The mark, you know, everything was suggesting the Democrats were going to take the take the House back, and then it kept going down, and I thought I'm buying more, I'm buying more. This is a done deal. And then it did it, Phil? Did it get down to fifty cents yep. or something? And at that point, I was panicking. I'm like, oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) But then it was a matter of 20 minutes later. The market was going up, and it was like 80 or 90 cents. It's really – it was fascinating to see – you know, see, see the mass movement on that. Um, yeah, it really is. It is stunning, and it's it's reaction to returns that are coming in and what people are saying. It really, it's uh, it's very accurate. It's it's real time, which is um, you know part of the no- novelty and, and fascination of it. Uh, um, yeah, and that's and that's a big part of. It. I mean, we we have obviously traders on the site trading every day of the year. Uh, and then you have situations like this where the bulk of the markets we have up on the site were connected to the midterm. So you get an extra several tens of thousands of people on the site, either trading or falling. Um, and it becomes quite an event. Yeah. You know, we were talking before we started taping. Well, for me, one of the more fascinating things the day after the midterms was to watch a lot of these the individuals who are in the prediction markets uh, compare, you know, Nate Silver's 538 versus predicted and the conversation that was going on there. And a number of, you know, Justin Wolfers from the University of Michigan and, and Harry Crane from Rutgers were doing all the data analysis. And their preliminary reaction was that predicted was, was doing better than many of the more traditional markets, including 538 and Nate Silver. Um, you know, how, what do you guys think about the accuracy of that? I mean, you're not trying to be necessarily be 538. You're just trying to create a market. Correct. And I, I mean, we will freely admit and know full well that a lot of our traders are looking at 538 and their models to, uh, you know, make some of the determinations on what they want to wager on. Um, I think that's that there's a there's a back and forth there. It's not a you know we're not trying to compete with them necessarily um but yeah yeah phil you phil you wanted to ask a couple questions about you looking forward right yeah so i mean i guess one of the i guess one of my questions is um that kind of gets us to that is how do you you were talking earlier about how many events you have uh up at any given time how many markets you have up how do you make decisions about that so you know i've looked at 2020 uh who's going to win the democratic primary or whatever and you know there's how how do you decide who to put on that list and who not to put on that list like at what point do you decide we're going to put you know beto on that list because he's getting lots of buzz what what's the sort of decision making process that goes into that so um there's a small group dubbed the questions team we uh I'm, i'm part of that and each week we hop on the phone and figure out what's going on in the news um and decide on markets that way, as well as we get a ton of feedback from traders making suggestions. So it's people who uh, want to buy something and don't want to know why it's not on the. Yeah, uh, yeah we, we get a lot of that. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, part of the challenge is we, you know, that we have more suggestions than we necessarily want to put up. So it's a matter of prioritizing what makes most sense. You know, you, know, you want to find questions that um, have a certain level, uh, have a level of uncertainty to it that will draw enough uh, liquidity to the market and be interesting. So that's always a conversation for 
for um, some ideas whether this will actually be of interest to enough traders. Um, in, the in, in the instance of 2020, that's something later this week as well as next week we're starting to pivot to and like our big, you know, who's going to be the Dimnom, who's going to be the GOP, that's something we, we're trying to manage not putting every last you know uh, suggestion on there just because it gets a little unwieldy uh, since that market will stay open for so long um, so we're trying to be a little more selective with that so uh, we typically start out with will this person run if they hit a certain percentage in that market uh, we look at transferring them over to uh, the dim nominee list so we're gonna we're gonna do another batch soon for that how closely do you follow the I mean are, are you just paying attention to the the sort of operation side or do you are you following the markets like I, I haven't looked lately do you know who the leader is on the dim noms nomination or anything like that uh, I want to say Biden and Harris may be at the top of the list at the moment and have been so for for quite some time you got to again factor in that we don't have every last name on that list right. so um, that'll that'll shift when we add more names um and yeah i i mean i spend spend a lot more time on the operation side of things but um more and more what i appreciate about the site is i almost rather go to predict it some days just to see what markets are moving to see what i really should spend my time paying attention to mm -hmm. versus you know going down the rabbit hole on twitter so <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, real quick, uh, you guys, you know, we talk about domestic politics a lot, obviously through predicted. It's uh, with the midterms and, you know, potential presidential nominees uh, and things like that. It's it's very domestically oriented. But you guys do have international world markets as well. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, if um, someone will, will be prime minister at, uh, at year's end or changes in leadership, um, you know, when Brexit will actually happen. Or do you guys... Um, do you guys plan on, especially now with the midterms over, expanding, I guess, more of an international focus? You're, you, you already have a ton on there, but um, do you guys have any insight into whether you would expand those types of markets going forward? So the short answer is yes. I mean, part of our hope, and we haven't plotted this out completely, but... Um, Right now, you have to be a U.S. citizen to trade on the site. Sure. Um, there is there are plans uh, to expand internationally. So, um, part of that market focus is thinking about uh, in those terms. Um, you know, when we hope to be up in a couple other countries in the next eighteen months or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think you know, besides U.S. politics, we are pretty. Uh, U.S. centric and the markets we have, but more and more the feedback I get is there's a lot of finance people out there, a lot of other business people that um, there are geopolitical events that they're looking at and don't have a lot of indicators to decide what the odds are um, on these things taking place, and they're trying to uh, make decisions based on that. So I think there's a real opportunity for um, expanding into, you know. Uh, more international international markets um, so we're looking for instance we're partnering with the economist on a on another batch of of international markets so um, I think 
we're looking to continue to do that um, with with select partners to to build that base. Um, and, and, and it also depends on, you know, again, the traders themselves and what they're interested in. So it's a still testing. <laughs> we do have a couple of listeners in the United Kingdom who keep saying that they're frustrated because they can't trade unpredicted. You know, they can look, but they can't trade. <laughs> working on that you know what was so when you think about a, like the size of the market and the number of shares so there's it's got to vary by market but what is so what would the maximum so a big market that's getting a lot of action how many shares might be traded in in a market like that well um under under the regulations we operate under um uh, just to take a step back, we we're allowed to operate as we do under a no action letter from the CFTC, and a and a couple of stipulations is that, you know, no trader can put in more than eight hundred and fifty dollars in a certain market, and there can't be over five thousand traders in any one market. That that helps um, defend against um, you know some whales coming in and pushing pushing the price. Sure. Um, way out, which was an issue with, with in trade, if you recall or yeah. um, heard of them, they were mm-hmm. pre- preceded us by several years. Um, so, so some of these markets uh, absolutely hit the five thousand um, mark uh, of traders, and and that certainly took place um, on midterms, and you know, just jumping back to the question of models for versus markets that was one point made of uh, for the markets where we had a lot more liquidity um, I, I think we did uh, a little better as far as accuracy um, and that's and that's a common um, argument against us is some of these markets are just a little too illiquid to, to suggest they have you know some real signal in there um, sure Although I will say it's fun, like you can have investors getting in buying a couple shares of stock, or you can buy hundreds of shares of stock. Right? I mean, I, you know, we've had uh, some of our listeners who you know go in and enjoy buying two shares. And the other day when I was sure. selling something, like somebody bought, you know, I, I can't remember. I think I listed twenty five shares, and somebody bought one. And I thought, like, who's buying? Who's buying one share? You know, but it happens. Uh, the other other thing I wanted to ask you about is so what happens? So the the case like the Florida recount. So a number of these uh, elections have gone to a recount count when do you guys make your decision like do you wait for the official decision like how how does all your calculation go there when you're waiting for the the outcome to occur um i I mean we are most often say most often looking for the official decision the recount um that was one that uh took us by surprise a little bit but that is you know we learn each week you know how how better to write a rule or how how better to uh, approach some of these issues because uh you know god forbid there are different scenarios that pop up uh, that we just don't anticipate for how some of these markets can pan out um sure yeah um, yeah, so I suppose, has there ever been a case where you haven't been able to decide a market where the, the outcome of whatever it was? Because, you know, you were talking about Trump's tweets. I always think about that. Like, you categorize, will he tweet about this topic? Sometimes he doesn't fit neatly into a box. 
you know, and, and somebody's got yeah, <laughs> to make a call. Is this tweet about the subject that the the market is about? Has it ever happened where you've had a market where you've said, "I'm sorry, we can't we can't decide this." Um, well, we are um, we're dealing with one of those right now. I should say with you know we still have a market up on the February shutdown oh, yeah. um, because of how the rules were defined. Um, it had to meet a certain threshold of employees furloughed. Uh, to no one's surprise, it's hard to get information from the government on on certain uh, <laughs> on certain situations like this. And we FOIA'd, you know, over a hundred uh, departments or whatever, requesting information to to confirm uh, if if it did meet that threshold or not. And we're still waiting for answers on that. So. Um, you know, again, there, there's situations that there are only two or three situations like that that have happened since we've been open um, since late 2014. Um, but there certainly are circumstances like that, and we try to game those out before we launch markets to make sure we don't uh, run into those. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. Phil, you look like you got a question. <laughs> No, <laughs> you look. You look at the markets. Oh, I, I, I mean, well, just kind of. Can you give us some background on particularly where did the concept? I mean, there were you know other, not similar, but uh, yeah, I guess similar political prediction markets um, prior to you guys. You know, how did your specific concept come to be? What's kind of the story behind it? Well, the parent company, Aristotle Inc., is a data analytics firm um, headquartered in D.C. They've been around since the Reagan era and have worked with every White House and, and campaign data support, um, and that that that's their background. And so they went to the University of New Zealand, um, who had a prediction market that's now defunct due to regulatory issues there called iPredict and said, hey, we'd love to take this concept to the U.S. You know, we we can support the back end of verifying the age of all the users and make sure, um, you know, to manage that component of it. So they support, Aristotle supports the platform and we partnered with University of New Zealand to bring this here to the U.S. and went to the CFTC and said, you know, we'd like to do this. Um, and negotiated getting a no action letter again where it's it's small small markets but it's for academic purposes and um you know it's it's grown since then i part of my work each week is working with uh you know uh crane professor crane from rutgers on uh crunch some of the data from our markets to to figure out is you know is there a signal here what's what's the value in prediction markets etc so we now have universities represented and 160 researchers that have uh partnered with us to use our data for various projects what what year did it start what year does it go back to we started october 2014 2014. And you said 2016, the 2016 election was your biggest trading day? 
biggest single trading day that was 26 million shares traded in one day wow. um, and, and yeah <laughs> and and by comparison uh 2018 election day was the second biggest at uh, a little over 10 million shares and uh, we are on track I don't know that we'll hit it by end of year this year but uh, a few months into 2019 and we'll have hit a billion shares traded so it's pretty wild to think that you know we've come this far and and um and a challenge, and you can see this in trade and other iterations of prediction markets, is you know liquidity and figuring out how to get enough interest in these markets. And I think you know over time we've slowly built um, a lot of followers that really enjoy it, and it seems to continue to grow. I, so. I was I had a discussion or a, a debate with a colleague a week or so ago about whether or not the Trump era is making people more interested in politics or whether people are getting burned out on politics and turning <laughs> away. And I was going to, I was going to ask about whether or not you can draw any conclusions based on, you know, the number of people coming to the markets, but I don't know that the, the history is long enough to draw that sort of uh, conclusion, but. I, well, I, I mean, it, you, it's obvious that he is a volatile president in the sense that he's he's hard to, he's hard to predict so yeah. that in, in some sense uh you know caters well to prediction markets um it, but yeah i it's mean fun to, it's fun to hear you tiptoe around the <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's something we've given up on at this point <laughs> yeah. oh. well I, I, had a, I had a different job before this one in, in 2016, so it's been a very interesting transition to be in a circumstance where we've got a lot of markets linked to, you know, decisions he's making and the, his activity on Twitter, et cetera. So it's, did, did you have a background or an interest in politics prior to this, or, or did other things bring you into this? Um, no, I was, uh, <laughs> I was working for Senator Tim Kaine um, okay. in 2016 and before that I, I mean I got into politics uh, 2007 jumped on the Obama campaign and did uh, press advance and ended up um, moving to DC for that so um, you know I did a stint on the hill and worked at the White House for a while and so it's yeah. always interesting now I find myself at a political betting market so <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> So well, this is All great. Side. Anyway, yeah, it, thanks for thanks for having me on. Yeah, we really we really thanks enjoyed it. It's, it's uh, the listeners love it. I think we've had a good time with it. It's been great for our own, you know, as political scientists, we look at it one way, but the markets are also really fascinating. So we uh, we appreciate partnering with you guys. Uh, likewise, and if you or any of your uh, listeners have suggestions for markets or other ideas, we are we're always open to that. And uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, definitely check out uh, predicted.org, um, all the stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, yeah, Will Jennings, head of uh, public engagement at Predicted. Uh, thanks again, man. We, we really appreciate it. This was great. Yeah, thanks, thanks Will. Will. Take care. Talk all to right. you soon. Bye-bye. Well, we should jump over and we should talk about some beers. Phil, are you drinking a beer today? Oh, of course. All right. Why don't you tell us what you're drinking? <laughs> Well, so it's it's cold in New Hampshire. Um, <laughs> we're supposed to get snow this week, and it's almost Thanksgiving, and I was at the store in Harpoon, 
which I like their IPA. They have a seasonal beer that I had never seen before called their Winter Warmer Holiday Ale Cinnamon and Nutmeg. Oh. Is, yeah, and I thought that's either going to be good or it's not. <laughs> that's a stupid thing to say. <laughs> it's either going to be good or it's not going to be good. <laughs> I, wasn't, I, I thought this is going to go really strongly one way or the other. Um, and it... it 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 didn't it did. <laughs> i don't i don't love it um but it's not terrible it's it i it it's you know it's mostly it's like uh you took a beer and you like stirred a little potpourri in and let it sit for a while Ew, and then you drink terrible, it. that's <laughs> really bad uh, phil you gotta work on your where, descriptions i know no I, that description's good it's not my the description's not the problem the beer's the problem i can see i can see where people would like this i don't like those that sort of spice like nutmeg yeah. sort of thing um but i could see where people you know sitting around in their christmas pajamas by the fire would would enjoy drinking mm-hmm. this it's just that, not me that, that seasonal stuff just sucks mm-hmm. it's terrible don't put nutmeg and shit in there it's not meant to be in beer it's no just pumpkin. bad it's yeah. a marketing gimmick yeah it's all don't fall for stuff. it yeah idiots yeah well nick and i <laughs> are driving to enjoying a uh, beer from forbidden root uh, and it's a wildflower pale ale it says it's brewed with elder marigold um i don't even know what that is thing. no yeah that no, has i don't to know be fake. yeah uh but it's 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 a i don't know what do you, it's a full very complex pale ale. It uh, is. I like yeah. how you just finished making fun of my description. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's what's going through my head as I described that. <laughs> it, um, yeah, there's something, I mean, obviously it's, you know, it's pretty hoppy, mm-hmm. but there's something underneath it. It's almost got like a, almost like a chamomile. Yes. Like kind of a weird, yes. like light sweetness to it's it. It's floral in a way, yeah. right? But not in your, t- it's not like, you know, it's not citrusy at all. It's more floral. Yeah. Where there's like a, it's like very a subtle. Of elder marigold. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's <laughs> apparently, it. it's just chamomile. They <laughs> right. just, re- yeah, they just rebranded. So uh, this is out of, uh, where is this out of? Uh, Bedford Park, Illinois. So not too far from here. No, so pretty yeah. close. Yeah. Forbidden Root. All right. Um, yeah, if you guys want to know what we try on the podcast, uh, download Untapped uh, on your smartphones, not your dumb ones, uh, on iOS and Android. Um, we are just Barstool Politics on there. You'll be able to see all the beers that we try, and uh, we rate all of them. So definitely check that out. Speed round. Yeah. All right. So leaders from all over the world gathered in a rain-soaked Paris this weekend to commemorate the anniversary of the armistice that ended World War One. It made for some wonderful political theater. French President Emmanuel Macron rebuked Trump's recent embrace of nationalism by stating, quote, patriotism is the exact opposite of nationalism and warning against, quote, old demons coming back to wreak chaos and death. That's talking about Germany. Yeah. Many mocked or trolled the president for canceling his visit to an American cemetery because of the rain. Even Winston Churchill's grandson took a shot at Trump over Twitter using the longest hashtag in the history... Hashtag, he's not fit to represent this great country. It's too long, Nick. Shut it's up. too long. Yeah. Hey, but it's Winston Churchill's grandson. Uh, Trump didn't take any of this lightly and took to Twitter early Tuesday morning, attacking Macron in a series of tweets. In one, he falsely accused Macron of wanting to build a European army, noting, quote, it was Germany in World Wars One and two. How did that work out for France? They were starting to learn German in Paris before the U.S. came along. Pay for NATO or not. I love that. It doesn't matter. Mm. Phil, this is another disastrous foreign trip for Trump. What did you make of it and the broader attempt by Macron and other European leaders to push back against Trump and Putin and others opening uh, or or others who are embracing nationalism? Um, You know, 
none of this is all that surprising, right? Trump is not Trump and the European leaders have not gotten along since the beginning. <laughs> um, the, you know, for a variety of reasons, uh, Trump likes people who are nice to him and doesn't like people who critique him. The European leaders have been critical of of Trump for you know valid reasons, mm -hmm. um, and so Trump kind of lashes out a, a, against them. So this is a repeat of many other uh, European visits. Um, you also, I mean, it, it makes sense what's happening as the U.S. has stepped away from NATO or has, you know, continued to threaten uh, essentially NATO allies. If you don't pay up, we're not going to defend you. Um, it makes sense that they start looking to each other mm -hmm. for, you know, some sort of defense. You, it, you would not expect them to continue to rely on the U.S. This seems like this would be what Trump would want or where he would be going. So it's a little uh, surprising. Um, Macron's statement about patriotism being the exact opposite of nationalism, I don't know of many political scientists who would agree with that. Oh, no, I know. <laughs> but his point, I, I get, which is that nationalism is problematic. So, like, raising the yeah. the idea that nationalism, you know, that, that sort of working together might make the world a better place. It's, um, it's so, not to interrupt, yeah. but it's so frustrating how, and again, it's just because we're political science nerds, but the distinction between patriotism and nationalism is so clear. And but it's this everybody says nationalism is bad and patriotism is good. And I don't know. It just. Yeah. Nick, it grinds on me. It doesn't grind. Yeah. On you. <laughs> I'm sorry. So go ahead. <laughs> no, it's, uh, that, I mean, that's I don't that's that's yeah. I mean, those are my initial impressions. Yeah. It's, none of it's all that all that surprising. I mean, it, it's what you would expect. Even the the rain. And I'm not going to go out to the cemetery in the rain is so Trumpian. Like mm -hmm. it's the whole trip was just mm -hmm. if, if I had to like predict how the trip would go. I, you know, it, I don't know that I would have specifically predicted, but it wouldn't have been surprising if I had randomly come up with it's going to rain and he's not going to go to a cemetery. <laughs> that's, that is, that's what Trump does. That's perfect. It's just such bad optics. I cannot believe he didn't do that. It was so bad. And then he tweeted this he morning said, that, you know, that, well, the, the, the Secret Service said I couldn't go. I mean, he, it doesn't like he just walks away and leaves it to say it'll go. Right. The story will go away in a day. He doubles down on it all. Well, it makes I, it worse because it's yeah. obviously bullshit, right? Because there are other presidents who have gone in the rain to these things. Well, this, what was it the, that Marine One can't fly in Fog or rain? What kind or of helicopter is it's that? Not a very it's good one. Helicopter. That's why we lost in Vietnam. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> That's the name of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, yeah, like you said, I get what he's saying, and I don't necessarily disagree with him. He's also an aloof, elitist douchebag. So I'm not really, you know in lockstep with, with what he's saying. Macron or Trump? Macron. Yeah. Um, I guess well, 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 <laughs> so we got to be more clear. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, let me think about that. <laughs> Two things can be true. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, I, he had to go and I really wish he, he would have done his best to tamper down his own, you know, internal emotional foibles. Mm -hmm. Um, he he just needs to stop going to Europe at this point. Yeah. It's not doing him any favors. You know, if you want to legislate from here and talk about NATO domestically and, again, tamper down your rhetoric like you said you probably should have uh, prior to the uh, the midterms, then, yeah, absolutely do that. You're just giving them fodder for for no reason. This is it's it's just bad political strategy at this point. One thing that's that's noticeable now is that these foreign leaders aren't trying to play nice anymore. I mean, for a long right. time, Macron was trying to put on a good face and he still did to some degree, but he's calling him out directly in this speech. 
Uh, Justin Trudeau of Canada gave this you oh. know, very moving speech. Moving, Nick. Moving. I don't even want. I don't, mm. Well, and, and so he's giving this speech, and and at the end of the speech, he's talking about the heroes of World War One and how that you know they died in the mud, and it wasn't rain, it was bullets. And then he pulls away his umbrella, so he's getting wet. And oh, he, you know. shut the fuck up, <laughs> drama but, teacher. No, absolutely. There, no, there's no doubt. But part of that is also, I think, a, a poke at Trump. And then at the next day. When all the world leaders, except for Putin and Trump, were walking down the street, Macron also, I'm not Macron, uh, Trudeau also didn't use an umbrella, right? I mean, so some of this is like, we're done with your games and we're pushing back against you, Trump, which wasn't happening a year ago. Everybody was trying to make nice. And now you get the sense that world leaders have had enough of, of Trump that way. They well, have their it, own. Uh, go ahead, Phil. No, I mean, I was just going to say that at some point it, that starts to make political sense for them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, the Trump is unpopular in other countries. Like, I, I would imagine that Canadians and, and you know, uh, French and, and British citizens are ready for their prime minister. You know, they're going to they're going to react to pushback against Trump. They're tired of, you know, biting their tongue. Yeah. At the same time, their leaders are also extraordinarily unpopular in some of these countries. Yeah. Macron is a, a, a political pariah. Well, yeah, a political pariah at this point. I want to say he's at like 26, because I think Trump tweeted that out today. He's at what, 26% approval rate. Right. But Trump is at 9% in France, so it's good politics for Macron to go after Trump because you know, it's, it's easy pickups. Yeah. The, French, the French don't like any of their leaders, no. ever. So, yeah, well, so the previous them. guy ended up, what was he at, like 4% approval rating? They're um, just angry people. Yeah, it's, They're really it's tough. angry people. Even as Macron, who I think has done a fairly good job, uh, at least internationally, it's just, as a French president, the it's just it's going to be a downhill slide. I, I mean, I, I, I think it's easy for them as as much as we make fun of Trump as kind of um, you know taking attention away from something bigger that is happening, these guys are really good at it too. They yeah. have a huge mess of issues um, in Western Europe that they need to deal with immediately, and they're just not. I mean, you have Brexit, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, you know, almost imminent at this point with no deal in place whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, the immigration crisis, uh, economic instability. Um, yeah, it's I, I again, I understand why you would think it's good political strategy. At some point, this it, it doesn't work anymore. The same way that Trump tries to draw our attention away from something. I feel like we've kind of gotten wise to that. And I don't think, you know, as many countries as there are in Western and, and, uh, and Western Europe and NATO allied countries, they have to start making real change because that's this is not going to work forever if we if we oh go ahead no what (laughs) no i mean i think you're i think you're right there's stuff that they could be doing but i also think this comes back to around to to some extent about if you are a western european leader trying to deal with these issues some level of american leadership could be really beneficial on, on refugee issues and economic and that's where trump's well, it's not a lack of leadership. It's where Trump's leadership in the opposite direction mm-hmm. is is sort of complicating things. So I, I see that also where, you know, what you were saying, Bill, I, I think at, at first you had a bunch of European leaders who were trying to convince Trump or to bring him into the fold because that leadership would be so helpful. And it, once it's clear that that's not going to happen, that's where this shift has, has come, where if the U.S. is going to make it worse, then we have to not try to convince anymore we have to attack or point out the the, the problem so uh, yeah. we're not i mean i they they, sh- they there is stuff that they can and should be doing but we're not helping with, well, and by undermining western institutions and that's an important point because many of those macron and others were pushing back against this wave of nationalism 
the reality is that there are a lot of receptive audiences in Europe to this appeal to nationalism. And in some ways, Trump fits well with Putin and Hungary and uh, Austria. I mean, there's a whole host Turkey, of uh, Poland, Poland and rest of them, right? So, I mean, he there was pushback from some of those countries, but there's also a receptive audience. My favorite picture, I know we got to move on, was when Putin showed up late to one of the events and they show him walking down and you see... Uh, you see Macron, you see Angela Merkel, and you see Trump. And Macron and Merkel are just scowling at, at Putin. And then you see Trump giving him a smile. It's just brilliant, right? The contrast <laughs> There's between my guy. those two. Yeah. Um, so, no, this was – I thought it was it was really fascinating to watch all of this. I think Trump did miserable, but that's kind of what he wants to do. Yeah. 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 All right. Topic number two, Democrats stealing elections again, Nick. Uh, while stuck in his Paris hotel because of the rain, <laughs> President Trump used the time to allege that Democrats were engaging in massive voter fraud in Florida. Without evidence, Trump tweeted that ballots were massively infected. He used the word infected hmm. like it's a disease mm -hmm. uh, in Florida and said that the election should be called in favor of Ron DeSantos uh, because an honest vote is no longer possible. Now, it's important to note that it was uh, mandated by state law and over, uh, that overseas... Uh, oh, uh, Overseas military ballots were not due until last Friday. So in Florida, Scott's lead over Nelson has narrowed to 12,000 votes out of more 8 million ballots cast, or a margin of 0.15%. State law mandates a machine recount if the margin is half a percentage point or smaller, and a manual recount if the margin is a quarter of a point or smaller. Florida Circuit Court judge uh, called on everyone involved to ramp down the rhetoric, noting that there's no evidence at this point to suggest any voter fraud has occurred. Phil, we've spent a lot of time talking about the dangers of delegitimizing democratic institutions. In this case, the president is directly stating we cannot trust the election results. That okay? <laughs> No, I mean, this was the, this was, you know, prior to the presidential election, he made this he had this sort of talk as well that, you know, if I lose, it's because the, the election is rigged. Um, the, you know, a lot of you know, I spent I spent some time I went to a conference this weekend and talking with other political scientists. I, one of the things I kept coming around to is it, it's not that Trump's rhetoric. I mean, Trump's rhetoric is disturbing. But the thing that is disturbing is how quickly the Republican Party has just jumped on to his talking points. It's part of what makes them a strong party right now. They have this unified voice that the Democrats don't have, but it's a little disconcerting. So when Trump says this, and then you see all these other Republicans sort of jump on this bandwagon of essentially saying um, it's unfair if we take the time to count all the ballots, which is what they're <laughs> yes. saying here. It's what they're saying in Arizona, right? You have you have absentee ballots that are still coming in. You have overseas military ballots. You have, you know, there, there, this is this is not. We're not even at a recount at this point. We're just at the count, yeah. right? We're still counting the votes because they're and being the, mailed in, right? I mean, it's it's right. like that's and that's okay that they're coming in. Yeah, that's the rules. That's yes. how it. That's how it's <laughs> set up. And so we're just counting the. We're just counting votes. And the idea that, you know, holy shit, this this election's getting close. And so we need to call it quick because it, it's unfair to count more votes if it's getting close. But, I mean, it's just it's a crazy it's a crazy um, it's a crazy take on it. And the extent to which everyone, you know, not everyone, a, a lot of other people have jumped on with that rhetoric in, in Arizona as well. I, I've been I've been. Um, I don't know. It's been nice to see, you know, the judge in Arizona. There have been a number of Republican officials who have said this is not, mm -hmm. you know, this is not this election's not being stolen. We're doing we're just counting. There's no fraud that's going on. Um, I, you know, I can't help but feel like I mean, this is the way, you know, Trump fights dirty. 
but I also look forward to, I don't actually look forward to, but I look, you know, I'm thinking forward to 2020 when there's the chance of a very close election and what's going to happen, right? If things start going the, the you know, uh, the wrong way. And that that's where, you know, Hey, these are the rules. Let's count the ballots. It's also where, why the hell don't we have some sort of national election system yes. in place? Why do yeah. we leave this up to all of these different districts all over the country? States it, rights. It's, it's mm-hmm. crazy. States yeah, rights. I know. States that's, rights. That's also, As yeah. a Texan, you should understand that, Phil. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I don't see yeah. a gun anywhere in your office. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, kind of piggybacking off of your point, Phil, um, I don't know. I think it was DeSantis who specifically said, yeah, I, I, we're going to wait as long as it takes, and, you know, this is the process, and whatever happens, happens. And that was, it was kind of heartening yeah. to me. I was I was very surprised. Um, but I think that that says a lot about, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric about the breakdown of political institutions and, you know, the way our democracy kind of just basically functions. Um, I do think there are enough people... Um, that are in power currently or are about to be in power or maybe you're losing their um, their particular uh, position that do actually respect the institutions as they are and will defend them even if it's to the detriment of their own political position. Um, I, I hope we see more of that yeah. going forward, whatever the results end up being. Um, I will be unhappy, mm-hmm. but... Um, no matter what I'll, they I'll are, I'll leave it at that. No, it's no. I think it's I, I I think it's good to see those little instances of hope when there's so much just toxic rhetoric. Whether you're talking about coming from the president or the media or yeah. <laughs> members of Congress, um, it's I think it, it it's really good to see that kind of stuff. I, I, I totally agree, because this is the kind of stuff that, you know, I get angry with Trump when he attacks the democratic institutions across the board, whether it's the FBI or the Department of Justice. But when you finally venture into attacking election results, that's really, really dangerous, because we all accept that the game is played, the rules are fair, no, and don't. the results are the results. But if you start to say that election is, and, and what did he say? In one of his tweets, he said, uh, there are a large number of ballots showed up out of nowhere, and many ballots are missing or forged. I mean, he has no evidence to support that. Right. And the it, ones that are showing up out of nowhere are the ones that are showing up in the mail. Right. Oftentimes right. from soldiers overseas, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, right. that's why they come right. in. So, I mean, this is that's this is really, really dangerous. And it's one thing if you have local officials bickering over, you know, the election and who's counting the votes. Is, you know, are we making sure that's fair? But when the president gets out with his megaphone and questions the legit- legitimacy of an outcome. It's really, really dangerous. So I hope there are more election officials who come forward and say, we're doing a good job here. This is nonpartisan. We just do our job. Same thing with judges and politicians. This is when the, I think to Phil's point earlier, the Republican Party needs to rein in the president to say, you can trust our election results, whatever may happen. I think also, I mean, I know we're out of time, but I, I think also this this also says something. And when you look at that tweet, right, he ends that tweet about how screwed up everything is with saying must go with election night, which also gets back to the fact that this is a president who's not it's not a fact based presidency. Yeah. It's a media based presidency. Right. He watched the the news on election night. They called the election. And so if if the media called the election 
and somehow now it's like getting closer then it must be rigged right as opposed to like <laughs> but that's actually insane. looking at it is insane <laughs> but that's i mean that's the way he operates right he sits right he watches tv he watches fox and friends he watches you know morning joe or whatever he watches election night returns and those are his facts the the you know the actual you know intelligence briefings and 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 the actual facts of the account don't it's it's all about the narrative and the story you you think or it sounds as if he has learned for the first time that ballots are mailed in and they don't all show up right i mean and he's sort of surprised by this what, what you know you can mail that's that's terrible right and and usually how it works is you can look at the outstanding number of ballots and if it's you know it's under a certain amount or somebody wins by a certain percentage you don't have to worry about that. But when it's close, you do. You have to count every single vote, even those that are mailed in. If somebody told me that prior to 2016, Donald Trump had never voted before, I wouldn't be shocked <laughs> in the least. <laughs> no, I agree. He uh, certainly hasn't voted by mail. So, All right, let's move to international, Nick. Yay. North Korea. So on Monday, the New York Times released a story and satellite images identifying more than a dozen undeclared North Korean missile operating bases. Where did they get their own satellite? Uh, I think I don't think it's theirs. Is it? I think it's theirs. Yeah, because no. they, they don't have any good ones. It's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this suggests that North Korea has continued to move forward with its ballistic missile program. What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> While the network of undeclared sites has long been known to American intelligence agencies, it has not been publicly acknowledged by President Donald Trump, who asserted that North Korea, quote, was no longer a nuclear threat following his June summit with dictator Kim Jong-un. Trump went on Twitter Tuesday to calm the waters, pointing out, quote, We fully know about the sites and nothing happening out of the normal. Just more fake news. But it, but it's not fake news, Nick. It's real. And he even said it was real. But he knew. He said he knew about it. I, I know, but it's, so, it's, it's fake but, news. <laughs> but even when it's the truth, it's the fake news. <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, and he also said, I will be the first to let you know if things go bad in that tweet. Phil, this all seems normal too, right? We're, we're good? It's I okay? I think the air horns will be the first things that let <laughs> us know right. that things go bad. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about this. I mean, this is, you know, like the Europe story. Nothing about this is surprising, right? The, the idea that North Korea was suddenly this, you know, international, they were going to play along and be a good citizen. Um, of course not, right? Mm. Of course, they were, they see, a, I mean, they see an ability in Trump to, you know, to play their hand, to, they, they can get the U.S. to back off and continue to develop their missile sites. Of course, that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. the, the interesting part, I mean, we've talked about this on previous episodes. The interesting part to me is that what point does Trump flip on this rhetoric? So, I mean, he was, you know, so antagonistic to North Korea at the beginning of his presidency. And then I guess North Korea was nice to him on their summit or whatever. And they and it became, you know, this all positive. Everything's great. And, and he's invested in that story now, right? That he's brought about more change in North Korea than any other president in the past 70 years. Um, and I don't know at, you know at what point this is just so detached from facts that he sticks with his narrative, or if there is a point in which North Korea does something that makes him go back the other way. Mm -hmm. That's part of the problem, right? That North Korea has had, this is the problem North Korea has had, but it's the problem that the international community has had, which is figuring out Trump, right? <laughs> How to, I mean, this is the danger, is that they feel like they have him figured out maybe, and so they're going with this path. But, you know, if they go too far, does he swing the other way? And in that case, you, you potentially have a crisis. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It's, 
Go yes. ahead, Nick. No, I was gonna say you 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 always follow North Korea and seem to be calm about it. You're not. Are you worried? Are you getting more worried? No. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> no, I I mean what's what's concerning about this is I still think that there's a good chance that we can see some fundamental change. Uh, in the political dynamics between the U.S. and North Korea and um, North Korea and the rest of the world in general. What's a little concerning to me about this is, yeah, there there does seem to be some evidence that there's obviously something going on. Some Whether I, yeah, And realistically, the intelligence community could know something about it. We don't know. If that's not the case, this has started to become, like you said, Phil, he's invested in this narrative. And you can see this becoming, this is his legacy. This is the thing that is going to cement his place in the annals of history. This is Obama and healthcare. This is, you know, W and unwittingly 9-11 and everything that came after that. This is something that is now bigger than him. And to let that fail, I don't think he can let that go. So I'm hoping that he takes a more prog- a pragmatic approach to it and a little, is a little bit more strategically and politically savvy to come out with a at least a neutral outcome. Um, I, I'm obviously who would prefer a, a positive outcome where they're, you know, not an economic powerhouse by any means, but something more than an economic and political pariah. And if the administration can help them do that, then so be it um, without giving up too much in return. I... I hope he can see past his own unwillingness to mm-hmm. let this fail. There, because there really is an opportunity here, right? Mm-hmm. North Korea is open to an agreement. I think they're in an economic situation where an agreement could be useful to them. I don't think it's about denuclearization, but it's something something short of that. But this is this is I mean, North Korea hasn't tested a missile in a long time. They haven't tested a nuclear. Those are those are good developments, but they are still cheating. They're still lying. They're not being transparent. And now we're seeing that because of what you said, Trump wanting a victory here, he's not being fully transparent with the American public. Uh, if the uh, now again, they don't have to do that. They don't have to tell every time North Korea is cheating, but they certainly could. And I, I I'm always struck by the contrast between what's going on in North Korea and how the administration is treating Iran. They can't, you know, push Iran more. They can't call Iran out for its, its indiscretions more regularly than they do. But it feels like North Korea is getting a pass on some of this. And I, I wonder whether some of it isn't just political, that they want to avoid this conversation. And that's that's bad, right? I mean, they're doing everything they can to curb Iran and put more sanctions on them. And with North Korea, it's like, well, you know, things are still going well, but they're not going well. I mean, it's, it's only marginally better, and it could get much, much worse. Well, I mean, they're not nearly as bad as Iran. I mean, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> there was a war? What do you do? Huh? Well, what? Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons. North Korea has nuclear weapons. North Korea is a legitimate threat. Uh, and one feels like Trump is now downplaying that threat. So. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Which I feel like it's constantly wait and see. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's jump. Jump. This is going to be an interesting one. I'm excited to talk about so, this. Before we do the yeah. next topic, I, I want to point out Bill types up this like outline every week, with, and I love the heading for this this one this week. <laughs> the heading for this next topic is just is Matthew Whitaker. 
<laughs> I'm sure there was more to that sentence that got left off, but I, I just <laughs> I, I forgot. I didn't notice that. I was scrambling and I didn't have time. I was trying to think of something witty for you know because I know you guys like. I the thought titles. it just was something witty that I didn't get. No, no. <laughs> yes, there was. Nick. <laughs> That's a good. I missed that. Continue, Bill. Bill. Sorry. All right. In the days since President Trump ousted Attorney General Jeff Sessions and installed Matthew Whitaker, a Trump loyalist, as the acting Attorney General, many have raised questions about his appointment. Some have even questioned the constitutionality of the appointment. The controversy arises because Whitaker was serving as Jeff Sessions uh, as the Attorney General's Chief of Staff, but had not been confirmed by the Senate. Um, And a federal law specifically says that the Deputy Attorney General takes over when there's a vacancy at the top of the Justice Department. So we've got a little, Trump has the ability to go around that, but then there's this whole question if he goes around that, does the person need to be confirmed by the Senate? Senate. Uh, Whitaker also has an interesting past with a few legal troubles. He's also stated that judges should have a biblical view of justice. Uh, that's all in addition to doing multiple TV interviews attacking the Mueller investigation before joining the administration. Phil, this is a fascinating case. There's the constitutionality issue. There's the what's he going to do with Mueller stuff. There's the loyalist as a top of the Justice Department. How, uh, what's most interesting? How do you see this playing out? Um, so... I mean, I, so my, my basic take on it is that it's, this is a, a major issue that he's been appointed. I mean, the, the idea, the law states that if the attorney general resigns or, reti- or you know, steps down, that the president can move another essential official into that position. But they have to be Senate. It has to mm-hmm. be Senate confirmed, which which Whitaker was not. So that seems like pretty straightforward to me. Um, I think that the, there's also questions about the fact that. Sessions was asked to resign if that qualifies as firing, because mm-hmm. if the president fires someone, then he doesn't have the right to name their replacement. Um, you know, when you throw in the fact that Whitaker has outwardly spoken about the Mueller investigation and how it can and should be stopped, I mean, all of this seems to indicate to me that Trump doesn't have the right to, I mean, he has the right to, he might have the right to name a replacement, um, a temporary replacement. Um, he, probably doesn't have the right to name Whitaker as the temporary replacement. And even if he does have the right to name Whitaker as the temporary replacement, Whitaker should recuse himself from this situation, right? Because he's made open statements about, so he can serve as the acting attorney general, but he recuses himself from the Mueller investigation because he's made this stance on it. But that's the whole point of appointing him is because he's so mad at Sessions for recusing himself. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, all of that to say that it, it's all, it just, it all stinks, right? <laughs> There's just corruption all over it. Having said all of that, and, and that doesn't even get to the whole, you know, that that a judge who's, you know, Jewish or, or uh, Hindu can't be a judge because they don't have a Christian view of things. Like, there's just all sorts of concerns about this guy. <laughs> Having said all of that, it seems like it's going to go forward. And and I'm not actually, this might sound weird for all of my, uh, you know, warnings in the past. I, I'm not that concerned. Um, and, and just because if I think if Whitaker were to just come out and fire Mueller, um, it's, I mean, if Trump wants to fire Mueller, Mueller's going to end up fired, right? The, it, it comes down to, at this point, whether or not Republicans will hold Trump accountable for the way he attacks the Mueller investigation. And it comes down to the Democrats' ability to launch investigations. And and the, the Democrat control of the House makes me feel a little better about this. But 
I mean, it, I, I guess in the end, what we're going to see over the next two years is Trump's going to continue to try to attack the Mueller investigation, just like firing Comey, firing Sessions, all these other things, media attacks. And it's going to come down to the, the facts through through House investigations and other things are going to come out at some point. And I think um, attacking the Mueller investigation might just exacerbate or speed up the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it comes down to, I, yeah, I, I, I generally agree with you, Phil. I, I think it, as much as it seems relatively obvious that he should not be in the position that he's in, I think it, in the end, will come down to what the term temporary is. Mm-hmm. Uh, if this is a r- relatively quick turnaround and we get someone like Christy, her, um, God, I just can't even imagine that. Um or Rudy. Rudy. Yeah. Or Rudy. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, oh God. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think this could be a relatively easy problem to solve if this is, again, a very uh, a quick appointment that's going to end up being removed in the in the very near future. Uh, if this goes on, especially with the Democrats taking control of uh, of the House, I think this goes very bad very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... <laughs> I hope they're aware of what the timetable is at this point. You know, I've been listening to or re-listening to this podcast, Slow Burn, where they go through uh, the impeachment, or they go through the Nixon Watergate scandal. And one of the things that I, I, going back and hearing the history of that is, it strikes me is that we didn't have to learn all of the details. Uh, You know, some things just luckily got out that led to this process that removed Nixon. And if I'm Trump, I think about ways in which I can shut this down and prevent information from coming out. Even if people are upset in the short term, if he's got something to hide, he's going to move. He's going to get Whitaker to fire Mueller. We'll talk about it for a couple days. He'll do something crazy. We'll move on. If I'm Trump, I'm thinking I'm going to do this. So I'm really afraid that he is going to try to do something, either fire Mueller or something maybe short of that. But I I wouldn't be shocked in the next couple weeks. Now, saying all of that, I also think Mueller's pretty smart and is anticipating that. So I, I think he's laid the groundwork for getting the case out, even if Trump moves in that way. But I, I think I think the next month is going to be crazy Mueller stuff. I mean, I think I, you're right. I've also been listening yeah. to this one podcast called Barstool Politics. It's good. It's good. That's <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, you know, we've talked. Th- that's that. We've been talking about that third rail for yeah. 50 episodes at this point, probably more. I. Man, there is enough bipartisan support uh, of the Mueller investigation, or at least to protect the concept of the special counsel, to that's just I, I still think it's political suicide for him to do it. Yes. Will he not do that? <laughs> I'm, I don't know. I would I would really hope that he wouldn't. I'm still leaning towards that he won't. Yeah. I I think it's I think it's sending a message that he can if he wants to and he likes putting that message out there. I just there's just no there's just no upside to it. But then why appoint Whitaker? You could easily have put Rosenstein in there. Everything continues as normal. The reason you put Whitaker in there is to have some influence over the Mueller investigation. We don't know what that influence is going to be: firing, constraining, hiding the report. But there's some reason there to to make that appointment. Well, and there's also the possibility that having Whitaker there gets the president information on the investigation and, yes. and what, what is going on. I, I mean, I, I think if I when I think about it, if I were advising Trump, what how would I advise him? I, I That's when I realized there's no good way out for him. Right. Mm-hmm. You let this investigation go on, in which case Mueller is going to dig deeper and deeper and find more shit. 
or you shut it down, but shutting it down just makes you look guilty and like arouses all sorts of suspicion and and possibly exacerbates your your political situation. I, I just don't I don't think there's a good way mm-hmm. at this point out of this other than to. I, yeah, I, I, I don't I don't see him handling it. Either direction seems really problematic for Trump at this point, mm-hmm. which may mean that the shorter solution is better. Right. He knows he's in a bad case. Let's just end it. Uh, There's an argument to be made that he should have done all of this before the election, yes. right? While the while the Republicans still controlled the House and all sorts of other yeah. stuff. Um, you know, anyway. It, there, you're hearing lots of speculation in the press that Mueller is going to indict people soon, right? There was some talk yeah. that it might even happen today. And whether that's Roger Stone or, um, you know, Don Jr. I sold my shares in Don Jr. being indicted because they, they skyrocketed. <laughs> made, made some good money, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> We'll know more soon. So, all right, the final topic here. Um, who needs asylum anyway? President Donald Trump signed a presidential proclamation Friday morning that will bar, uh, bar migrants who cross into the U.S. illegally through the southern border from seeking asylum. The proclamation put into effect a new rule, the Trump administration, uh, that would ban migrants from apply- applying for asylum outside of official ports of entry. The American Civil Liberties Union has already called the rule illegal, and legal challenges are expected to follow. The executive action is the latest the president has taken to clamp down on illegal immigration and to discourage the group of migrants now traveling through Mexico from Central America. Trump's proclamation directly contradicts the law itself on the books, which allows individuals to claim asylum no matter how they enter the United States. Uh, this action is consistent with the president's other other actions toward immigrants and has many parallels to the Muslim ban. Phil, what's what's your reaction to this one? This is another fascinating topic, and there are legal elements, there are political elements, there are moral elements. Uh, what strikes you about this? Um, I mean, a couple of things. I think on the political side, I, I think Trump thinks that this is a winning uh, topic for him. I mean, the caravan, you know, got people fired up and, and pissed off. I think immigration with his base is a winning topic. So I think that's part of the reason why he keeps coming back to this. I also think he keeps coming back to it because he's racist. But um, that's, <laughs> that's another side of it. Uh, from a legal standpoint, I mean, this is this is really it, it's interesting because um, the I mean, at least he's affirming that they have the right to apply for asylum at ports of entry, right? Which is, yeah. a, there had been some, uh, he had made some allegations that that, that you know, he's, he's his rhetoric has been, you know, why do you come here to apply for asylum? You know, you apply from asylum from where you are, but you have to be here, right? The, the law is stated is you have to come here and you have the right to apply um, at, at ports of entry. Now, I don't, you know, I don't know, um, it would be interesting to get someone who maybe has a little more legal expertise in this, but, you know, the, from an international law perspective, there there are, you know, refugee conventions, the, the, the laws about refugees are that once you're in a country, no matter how you've gotten there, you can't be, if you, ha- if you rightfully fear for your, you know, safety due to a list of, you know, particular reasons, you can't be returned to your home country under international law. Mm-hmm. So, that's different from U.S. asylum laws, right. right? But but this gets to this, you know, challenging international norms again. So, you know, you're you, maybe you can't apply for asylum, but legally the U.S. can't force you to go back home if you can prove that you fear for your um, life or safety there under specific circumstances. I would imagine mm-hmm. that the U.S. would argue that those don't, those, you know, they would narrowly interpret that. Right. But it's another way in which we're kind of backing away from these international, you know, this sort of post-World War II uh, international order that's been established. Well, I, I mean, we kind of talked about that when Tom was on the podcast last time, too. It's this kind of definition on what a, you know, a refugee who is seeking asylum is at this point. Is it economic disparity? Is it 
you know, f- just kind of general fear for uh, security? Is it warfare? Is it, you know, it's the definition of an I feel, especially in this in these particular situation, has expanded into this kind of amorphous thing. And you can you know, we can talk about international norms that were set up after World War Two. There was a very specific reason that those things were set up after World War Two and right. very defined terms and definitions for who a refugee is and what asylum means. I feel like we need to have some sort of wider understanding of what that is at this point. But if we're talking about economic disparity and, and lack of opportunity, um, I that's a tough one to agree with. I you know, I feel for the people that that have to deal with that. At the same time, I, where where does it end? And I'm not saying there's this massive influx that the administration is saying, but there does need to be definition around these things at some point. And I feel like we have not gotten to that point yet. I, I, it, I think that's a totally fair point. I think we have to address Phil's issue no. first, though, because it's, it's whether you even hear that claim, whether you hear right. the, it's, does it have to be political violence? Is it economic dynamics? And, and to, to circle back to your earlier point, Phil, I think you're, you're absolutely right that there's these international conventions. But in this instance, also the U.S. laws on the book also right. say no matter how you get here, it doesn't have to be through a port of entry. You are entitled to make your claim for asylum, sure. even if we turn that down. And, and Trump can't unilaterally right, change right, right. that. So here's the question, right? So, But maybe he can, right? So maybe he appeals this. Maybe this goes to the Supreme Court. And I was talking to my class the other day about this. And I said he could conceivably make a I am commander-in-chief appeal and argue National that security. I am trying mm-hmm. to pr- protect the country. And as commander-in-chief, the Constitution supersedes any law passed by Congress. And I don't know if that's the legal argument they're going to make, but at some point there's a there's a divide between the law and the books says that the president can't do this. And now he puts a proclamation out saying, no, I can. Well, how is that going to get resolved? And it, it, it initially it just strikes you as it, he can't do that. So he's got to come up with some creative legal justification for it. Well, I mean, with the midterms over at this point, what is the political capital to be gained with continuing down this road? I mean, we're far, we're pretty far away from anything that matters at this point besides appealing to your base. There doesn't seem to be any reason to continue to pursue it except the fact that he's him and he right. wants to pursue it. And it's, it, it's one of the consistent issues he's held on even before coming into the office of the presidency. There's been this racial element and immigration element I don't- to it. I don't think he likes immigrants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I take that back. He has talked about European immigrants or something right, like that. That's right. They're, they're okay. They are the best. No, but that is a great question. It was it was a really useful tool in the run up to the midterms. And yeah. the fact that immediately after the midterms, he's continuing to run with this suggests that it matters to him. Or uh, what's his name? Stephen Miller, right? It matters to him a lot too. And those two have. I think Stephen Miller is driving domestic policy, and John Bolton is driving foreign policy right now, and it just scares the living daylights out of me. I, I go back to, <laughs> I'm going to have another nerdy political science yeah. moment, because a couple of weeks ago in my global politics class, I was teaching Graham Allison, right, where you shape foreign, so Graham Allison wrote about the Cuban Missile Crisis, trying to understand U.S. foreign policy, and one of his ways of understanding it, this bureaucratic politics model, talks about power and influence, mm-hmm. that, that foreign policy is political, and who has access to the president, and who has power, and who has the ear of the president. Those matter. Those things matter. And so when when the when Donald Trump has been surrounded by first Steve Bannon, but now, you know, Stephen Miller and John Bolton and, and whatnot, it's not it's not necessarily surprising. That, so even if 
even if you don't think that Donald Trump is racist, Stephen Miller's pretty racist, right? And so, you know, when he's pushing, you know, when, when Trump is getting his foreign policy cues and his domestic policy cues from Stephen Miller, it's not surprising that he sees this as valuable and important. Yeah. And, and you know, there's also the chance that Trump himself sees it as valuable. Yeah. And right. <laughs> right. Ooh, this was good, Nick. Ooh, yeah. We got through some stuff. Ooh, girl. We could, the, yeah. <laughs> All of those could have been big topics, but we, for our listeners, got through them in like Five to seven minutes. Yeah, we're good at yeah. really taking all those problems and solving them in a five-minute period yep. when people can't solve them over That's decades. Right. It's good. They just suck at they their just jobs. They just put us in charge. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, thanks again to uh, Will Jennings, uh, head of uh, public engagement and predict it for uh, talking to us the first part of the hour. Um, we really appreciate it. Um uh, like we've been talking about on the podcast, definitely check out Predict It, uh, which a, a stock market for uh, buying and selling shares in uh, future political events. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners, if you open an account uh, up to $20, Predict It will match that $20. So deposit $20, you'll get $20 in free money to use on Predict It. Uh, Predictit.org slash promo slash Barstool 20 uh, Yeah, check it out. It's a lot of fun. Uh, all the other good stuff. Um, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, Facebook at Barstool Politics, uh, Untapped Barstool Politics on there. You can check out all the beers we try um, with reviews. Uh, the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play Music, Stitcher, all those fun places. Um, this was episode ninety nine. Wow, that's insane. I can't imagine talking to you guys for more than like five minutes outside of this setting. <laughs> and we've talked to each other for over 99 hours. That's yeah. weird. Um, are we on next week with Thanksgiving or are we skipping that? Are we taping early? I can't remember. Is, am I breaking determined. down the fourth wall? We'll, 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 we'll Facebook you. <laughs> Tune in. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll let you guys know. Definitely check out uh, Twitter. We'll have information on that. We'll have the, uh, the predictive promo link on there as well. Um, we are not taping next week. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> we just figured it out. I just looked at the calendar. Cool. You don't have to look at, but look at social media anyways. Happy, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> have some extra stuffing instead. <laughs> uh, anything else, guys? No. Great. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>